pray with you as we prepare to, to hear the word of God. Father, we ask that in your mercy and your grace that you would uh, speak to us, that it wouldn't be my voice that is predominantly heard, but that your spirit would speak through every line and in between every line that I say, that your word would go forth with might and power, that you would encourage your church, that you would convict your church, that you would transform your church into the image and the likeness of your son for the glory and the honor of your name and that of the Son and of the Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the movie Out of Africa, Karen Blixen, played by Meryl Streep, and Dennis, played by Robert Redford, they sit on the beach having this, this conversation. You see, uh, Karen, her marriage is ending, and they've been having this illicit affair for quite some time, and she poses the question to him if, you know, as her marriage ends and her her Husband is finding a new bride, uh, if such could be their fate as well. And Dennis, very pointedly and perhaps coldly, asks her, well, how would a wedding change things? She's kind of sad at the prospect, wanting more out of the relationship, but he assures her towards the end. He's like, listen, I won't be closer to you. I won't love you more because of a piece of paper. And such often typifies our, our view of marriage in, in today's day and age. Right? The, the cynicism of the ceremony, that all the pomp and circumstances, it comes down to you know, throwing a party, having a piece of paper, declarations of love that don't really carry beyond the moment. Why do it? Yes. For many... For Dennis in particular, you know, the marriage, yes, you receive a piece of paper devoid of real meaning and real substance. It doesn't provide substance, it provides entanglement. It restricts rather than liberates. It comes at a high cost, but really pays out very little. The intensity of the love from which they're to derive their happiness and their joy, well, it's not furthered through the ceremony. So why participate? And we can see why such a remark can make sense in today's day and age. And we see the you know, devaluing of marriage and all the hardships and tangleness and divorces and, and all these things that come through, through marriage that doesn't really match up to well, our expected promise. However, as people who follow Jesus, we have a little of a different way of viewing marriage. We, perhaps naively to the world, view that in the wedding, something happens. That behind all the things that we see and hear and experience, the, the ceremonies, the processions, the music, the vows, the kisses, that something more and deeper is happening. That behind the, what's visible, there is an invisible work that God himself is doing within the marriage, within the wedding. As Jesus says in Matthew 19, you know, he's, He's talking about marriage and divorce, and he says, For this reason, a man is going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Perhaps we're naive as people who hear and follow Jesus' words. Perhaps we're we don't stand up to the cynicism of the world that says, oh, no, all that's happening is you know, ceremony, a party, and a piece of paper. But we don't believe that. That through these things, 
the invisible God is doing an invisible work. And rather than being negated by the hardships of marriages and their betrayals and those things, the work of God ends up highlighting just how deep those hardships are, how, how deep the betrayals can be. Now, you may be wondering if you've looked at your, at your bulletin and you saw the topic of today. It's not marriage or divorce or any of those things. Today, we're going to actually be talking about baptism. So why do I begin with ma- talking about marriage and how that works? It's because for, for, for many of us, it's easier, easier for us to understand that within the ceremony, And within all these things, and all the pomp and circumstance, and all these things, that there's an invisible God doing an amazing work. And so we're going to begin a series today. Is there a lot of feedback? Are we able to adjust that at all? Um, We're going to begin a series today on what have been called traditionally the sacraments, or the means of grace. That the things that Jesus instituted for the people of God to participate in, things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, that it goes beyond just the formal ceremony that we often see, but it, it reveals that these are the means by which God has chosen to save his people, to transform his people, to deliver his people. That there is a, a mighty work that God is that God is doing as the chief actor among these things for his people. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to second, or, um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And as you're turning there, it's on page 1200 if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, and I just want to get clear, you know, we're not going to be discussing a lot of the things that oftentimes hold our ideas about, you know, what baptism is. We're not going to be talking about the mode, you know, whether you need to be dunked or sprinkled or poured. And if you're dunked, if you need to go forwards or backwards or the number of dunks, like if it's going to be three or one or the recipient, whether it's to be, you know, somebody who can confess and articulate a belief in Christ or if it can be an infant. Now, not to say that these aren't important questions, but for this moment and for this Sunday, I don't want to take, as Peter Lightheart talks about, the sign of God's unity and make it a spring of division. What I want to do is to talk about the meaning, the purpose, and the power of baptism for the life of the people of God, the thing at which we, as his people, receive from God his work. And so if you would, in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 9. For in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And as we begin to get into this passage and focusing our, our, well, our gaze on what it declares about the baptism, this, this rite of passage for those who, who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, this sacrament, this means of grace for his people, we, we are confronted, at least I am, that in baptism, God provides Christ's finished work for his people. Read with me again, verses 11 and 12. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And the first question I want to ask is, well, who is at work? Who's the actor? Who's the one who's performing the task? Right? And what Paul is saying is that the work of baptism is a work performed chiefly by God. Right? Note the passive voice for the person. You were buried. You did not do it yourself. You did, it and did not administer it to yourself. It is, it is God who is at work. Well, is it the officiant who dumps you? No. Is it, he relates it to the circumcision, not performed by human hands. That there's a spiritual work. That behind the, the activity and the ceremony and, the, and the, all that accompanies the baptism as the, the person is, is dunked underwater and, and brought back up, that God is at work there performing an act, performing his work, this circumcision that's not of human hands. And what is this work? Well, it's none other than union with Christ. Note just how often, and it's obscured a little bit in the English, but in, in the Greek, this is, you know, it, sometimes they'll say in Christ or with Christ, and in the Greek it's kind of the, the same phrase. But how often it keeps going back to the same idea. In him, you have been brought to fullness. Verse 10. In verse 11. In him, you were circumcised. Verse 12. You were buried in him. And again in verse 12. And you were raised in him. That what Paul is trying to articulate for his people is that in him, like there is something that's happening that, that you, that you are tied, that you are united, that you are connected to Christ in this spiritual way that goes far deeper than just a ceremony. And that well, well after you have dried from the baptism, there's something real and true that remains. The work of God in your life. That you, by you being united to Christ, experience the fullness of that. The forgiveness of sins. The power over sin. The goodness of God in your life. Now, the next question is, well, when does this begin? When are we supposed to experience this? It's not by accident that he calls it, you know, he connects it to, to circumcision. And what is circumcision? Well, it's, you know, for it was the sign and seal of the people of God in the Old Testament. Right? 
from Abraham on that all males needed to, to be circumcised, to have a piece of them cut off, to separate them from the nations as the people from whom God was going to uh, bring his Messiah. Oftentimes it would happen when, when, they, were, when they were baby, or well, almost always it would happen when they were babies, if they were born to the faithful heirs. Before they ever had, you know, performed a work, they were grafted into the community. And again, I'm not necessarily going to be talking about whether, you know, infant versus confessional baptism. It's not my, my goal for today. But what is clear, what is clear for Paul, is that for the people who call on Jesus ought to be baptized as an introduction to the people of God. Just as circumcision connected all of God's people together as a sign, that baptism does it for his current people. So what we see is that in baptism, God is at work uniting his people to himself and to one another. And he's calling his people into that unity. Now, when I was a young, younger man, um, you still are a younger man, but when I was an even younger man, I think perhaps late high school, maybe early, early college years, uh, we, some of my friends and I went out uh, evangelizing you know, to, to random people. And in one particular case, you know, I was talking with a guy who uh, grew up Catholic, but you know, he had been well, far from being devout or faithful, and you know, he you know, fully admitted his life was, was full of you know, sin and you know, it's just well, all this stuff. I asked him, you know, if, well, did you want to get right with God? Did you want to give your life to Jesus? And his response was, was basically, you know, to summarize, no, not right now. I need to get my life together first. There's too much sin. I'm too damaged, too unclean. I can't do that right now. Now, what would, how would you respond to such a man? Well, what you probably should do is to say something like, like you've missed the gospel. In best case scenario, you seem to get your life right. You get over this sin that seems to be so powerful. And then you think that you can now stand before a holy God? That you can now earn his grace and mercy over you? Best case scenario, you overcome this sin and then you, you deny the very gospel that's, that's you know, seeking to save you. The one that saves you by grace, you know, it is for by grace that you have been saved, not, you know, not by works so that no one can boast. And worst case scenario, you continue under the power of sin, never able to come before God. That need, you know, when you say, I have to get my life right, and it, it always ends with you denying the very gospel that's, that's come to save you. And for many in the church... You know, they view baptism a, a lot like that young man viewed salvation. Yes, I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm not ready. You know, there's, there's still sin in my life. I have doubts about what I, what I really believe. I know I should pray more, and I don't. I barely pray at all. So, you know, I, I can't get baptized right now. 
And they miss the very mean, you know, they miss what baptism is about. It's not about I have reached some status in my Christian life, but it is I want to be united to Christ and to receive his work for me. That when we, when we have such a view, like I'm not ready. Yes, I've given my life to Jesus. Yes, I've repented of my sins. Yes, I've in my heart, but I'm not ready to be baptized. What I'm saying is I'm denying the very grace of God over my life. I don't want that. And when we say, well, I have this sin and I have these things, well, it's just, we, we are denying that, that this is the means by which God does a work in his people. That he strips off the old flesh. That he clothes you with Christ. That he gives you the inheritance that you're, that you're longing for. In baptism, it is the means by which God accomplishes a work in his people. So if you've given your life to Jesus, be baptized. Receive it. Receive it as, as it's offered to you. Yes, in, in baptism, I, I receive God's finished work in Christ. But in baptism, God also proclaims to us his finished work in Christ. Read with me verses 12 and, and following one more time. That you, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, that when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Part of the amazing thing about baptism is that as we embody this activity, we do so in allowing God himself to proclaim to us his gospel. That God is at work not only in the recipient, but God is at work proclaiming the truths about our salvation to the world. That while we were dead, God made us alive. While we had nothing, God came and he found and he rescued us. We were dead in our trespasses, Paul says. Unable to do anything. Unable to find righteousness before God. Unable to come before him. We were dead. Yet God made us alive in Christ. It's good news. Now, when I was growing up, we would often hear you know, great and grand testimonies of the ways that God had you know, changed people lot, people's lives. Some of them became you know, almost national figures on, you know, in Christian stages because of their testimonies and because how awesome uh, you know, God's work in their life was. You know, the, the mob boss who found Jesus in prison and turned his life around. The drug dealer who you know, was you know, some drug kingpin, yet God found him and he, you know, completely transformed his life and is, you know, now working with underprivileged kids. The prostitute who found Christ and is now, you know, happily married with, you know, a couple kids and, you know, following Jesus. And these are great and grand and awesome testimonies of the work of God. And for, but for those who grew up in the church and we look at our lives and say, well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and um, my parents loved the Lord and 
they were, you know, despite their faults and flaws, they were, you know, generally pretty good people, and I just, the people in the church loved me and welcomed me, and I heard the call of Jesus, and I said yes to them, and they're like, oh, man, I just, I'm, I'm bored listening to myself. Why would, you know, such a testimony, like, what, who wants to hear that? And very oftentimes we view our testimonies like the end of our hero's journey where not having the hardships, not having the, the tr- you know, the troubles and these things, it just makes a pretty boring story. I've started, you know, when going to bed, I've been watching The, the Lord of the Rings because it's now on Amazon. Um, you know, it, it's going to take me like a week and a half to get through it because I fall asleep every night, um, which is okay. That's why I watch it. Um, but how boring of a story... Would, you know, the Lord of the Rings be if, you know, rather than having to traverse mountains and, you know, shield himself from cold and, you know, flee from the Nazgul and, you know, all the things that they have to do is just like, you know, I'm just going to like walk around the corner and throw the ring in a fire, you know? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> now, it, it'd be a pretty boring story. And so often we view our testimonies, you know, if it's supposed to be this this hero's journey where we overcome and that we, you know, get over these mountains and go down these valleys, you know, whether spiritual or moral, and we have to, to flee from the temptations that seek us to deter us from the journey, you know, the things that want to distract us from what's going on or the things that want to, to help us to, you know, that pretend to get us to our journey but are really false pathways or the unwillingness to, to pr- press forward despite those hardships, and we look at our, our testimonies and say, well, you know, I don't really have that much to offer. No one's buying the movie rights to mine. And so doing, we've missed the proclamation of God that he, he proclaims in baptism. That your testimony is not about what you have done and have overcome and have, you know, have gotten over in order to find Christ. It is that you, while you were dead in your trespasses, while you were unable to please God, while you were unable to seek God, while you were unable to want to seek God, God found you. That God reached into your darkness and He found you. And that God is continuing to reach into your darkness to find you and to bring you to Him. That your testimony... That your testimony, that the subject of it is not I, but He. That it's the work of God for you. And this is what we proclaim in baptism, that while we were dead, God has made us alive together with Christ. That while I was unable to seek Him, He sought me. And so those of you who are preparing for your baptism in a couple of weeks, If your baptism is simply, I heard the voice of Jesus call me and I said yes, that is sufficient. Because it's not about you. It's not about the sordid details of your past. It's not about the things that you had to overcome and triumph over. It's about the Christ who has triumphed for you and against the powers of evil that seek to ensnare you. That is our testimony as we go forward too, isn't it? That God has found us. That God has met us. That God has triumphed in Christ for us. And that we, being united to Him, have also triumphed.
And furthermore, yes, that God in baptism does a work to unite us to Christ, and God in baptism proclaims the work of Christ in our life. But God in baptism also expects from us a new life. And I know as I am speaking to a a congregation of this size and this level of maturity that, you know, for the vast majority of you, you have been baptized. You have gone through, you know, this rites of passage, that you have experienced the, the waters over you. And you may think that this is a message for those who have not yet been baptized. You know, there's an old, uh, you know, Carly Simon song, You're So Vain, I Bet You Think This Song Is About You. And the reverse here is true. I'd be worried that we'd be so vain that we would think that the sermon isn't about us. That's speaking to others. That's not speaking to me. But that's not how Paul uses baptism. This isn't just a few verses to proclaim, you know, the wonders of this ordinance. This is a, these are passages that set up his proclamation to the church to live out the resurrection of Christ in their lives. There are two resurrections that seek to control your life as a Christian. There is the resurrection of Jesus in whom you were raised Past tense, as Paul says it. In him you were raised, he says. By faith. But there's another resurrection. An unholy resurrection. In the waters of baptism, God has stripped off the the passions of the flesh. The worldly ways of, of, of living and of desiring that in that pool he has drowned them. He has put them to death. And yet, so often, we resurrect them, don't we? We go back to the the very things from which God has saved his people. We refuse, again, his salvation for us. And so Paul, encouraging his church in chapter 3, I just want you just to, to listen as he proclaims, yes, we've been baptized, and in Christ we were buried, and in Christ we were raised. So what now? Chapter 3. I'm going to give Paul the last words here of the sermon. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived, 
But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And you have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'll invite the worship team up as we pray. Kind Father, you have given us your grace in the person of Jesus, that you have uh, the sign and the seal of which that many of us we have experienced in the waters of baptism. In him we have been, that we have been united, uh, we have been united with him. In him we were buried, in him we were raised. So Lord, do what we cannot do on our own. Help us to put to, to death all these things. Help us to set our minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Help us to cast our gaze to your son Jesus, seated and enthroned in heaven. Help us to walk as your people, we pray. And Lord, by your Spirit, change us, transform us, deliver us, that we would represent you well to this world, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And as we are closing, sorry, um, I want to invite you if, to remember your baptism. On the sides of... Uh, of each aisle, there are some pools of water. And if you want to have an embodied response to the word, to proclaim or to allow the Lord to proclaim once again the fullness of his promise in baptism, you're welcome just to go, you know, dip your hand in the water, pour it, you know, uh, sprinkle it on your head or, or pour it on your head and just to remember the promise of baptism in your life asking God to forgive you once again, to cleanse you, to change you, to give you that new life that's offered in promise, to receive the fullness of the promise of baptism. So as we stand and to sing, if the Lord is calling you or leading you, uh, feel free to do that. And if the Lord is not calling you, well, you can feel free to, to worship with us.